Hello and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club, the literary strand of the Folklore Podcast, where we take a look at books which cross over into our areas of folklore interest, sometimes fiction, sometimes non-fiction, but always fascinating. Today I'm welcoming back for a second visit one of the UK's top fiction writers, Joanne Harris, whose new book Honeycomb has just been released. Eerie, dark and opulent, writes Joanne on her website, cocooned in silken shadows, this is a novel unlike any other. A honeycomb built from a hundred cells, each cell a story in its own right. Gorgeously illustrated by Charles Vess, it follows the tale of the lacewing king, magical trickster and ruler of the silken folk, his misadventures, his treacheries, and his pursuit through many worlds by both the vengeful Spider Queen and the deadly Harlequin. On his journey through the worlds of the folk, of the Sand Riders, the Undersea, the River Dream, and even the Kingdom of Death itself, he encounters a multitude of characters, a clockwork woman, a watchmaker's boy, a huntress with a mechanical tiger, an undersea queen in love with the moon, a princess who dreams of a library, but none more magical than the bees, the little builders of Honeycomb, taking their nectar of dreams to the hive and spinning them into stories. I spoke to Joanne a week or two back about Honeycomb prior to its release. Just a little caveat, this interview was recorded online during some pretty horrendous weather conditions, and the connection we enjoyed was not the most stable that I've ever used. Apologies for any slight glitches in the audio, which shouldn't spoil your enjoyment too much. Joanne, welcome back onto the Folklore Podcast. It's lovely to see and hear you once again. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, it's a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Now, today... We're going to be talking about a book which is not quite out yet as we record this, but will be out very, very shortly. And that is your new book, Honeycomb, which I know there's a lot of excitement for. Um, It's a slightly unusual book in some ways in the way that it was constructed. And I want to talk about that a little bit in a moment. But before we do, can you maybe just kind of summarise the concept and the story arc itself within this book? It's a bit of a difficult one to summarise because it's different to anything I've done before. It's actually different to anything I think anybody else has done before either. It started off as one thing and it ended being another. It started off as a series of short stories which I wrote live on Twitter. And those stories acquired as I went on through the years, and it must have been about 10 years ago when I started writing them, it acquired a series of ongoing story arcs and so it became from a series of short stories it became a novel which is entirely built of short stories and so it's a kind of jigsaw puzzle and it takes the the character of the lacewing king who is my protagonist who is a bit of an anti-hero character through a kind of coming of age and kind of journey of the soul um and a kind of confrontation with his enemies of which there are many against the background of this honeycomb world that I've created and extended during the whole process. And so it's, um, it's an adventure story. It's a fantasy story. It's, it's also a story of redemption through love, I guess. 
Yes, it's lots of different things, isn't it? And uh, but as you say, it has this overriding story arc that ties it all together so beautifully. Now, you, you said very briefly there that this originated in part um, through your writing of short stories on Twitter. Uh, and I'd like to just get you to expand a little bit on that to explain how you do that. Is this a case of writing a short story prior to tweeting it, which you then break up into segments and post, or does it work another way? Oh, no. Oh, no, it's, it is literally writing a story live. Um, I've been doing this for some time now, and I've rather enjoyed the process because... To me, it doesn't feel like writing at all. It feels much more like a vocal medium, a performative medium. And it's also quite a risky medium because because very often I don't start with a very strong idea of how I'm going to progress. The story ends up writing itself. And so there's always the risk that I am going to run out of steam or be interrupted by something and, and just not be able to continue. And so there's this element of public tightrope walking, which I have to say... Um, has has been rather interesting and informative for me because it's changed the way I've seen storytelling and it's certainly shaped the the whole style of this book and these stories. I couldn't have written them in any other way, I think. Um, I think there's something slightly different in terms of the vocabulary that you use and the conciseness of the phrases that you use when you're on Twitter that is imposed by the, the medium. Um, Therefore, I've, I've had to develop a style that works for Twitter because every sentence has to stand alone. Every sentence has to be a tweet. Um, it has to link up to every other sentence. And initially, when I was writing these stories, I didn't thread them. I don't think threading was a thing on Twitter in those days. And so there was a kind of scrolling of the story on my feed. And then there was a scrolling of the news and whatever current events happened to be happening on the public feed. And then there was a kind of synthesis of both. And so what I thought I was doing at the time was sending out these kind of little ephemeral messages onto the ether to see what would happen. And it was interesting to see how sometimes these things interconnected because inevitably because I was on a public medium I was thinking about some of those things and so some of them were politically motivated some of them were motivated by things that were happening in my life um some of them just kind of came out of the blue but I became interested in the method of doing this and the idea of crafting a little sentence which would stand alone and which would draw people into the story and that's that's kind of what happened I got a group of people which slowly became larger and larger anticipating story time and saying, are you going to have story time? Um, and when I would announce story time, they would tell each other. They were going to doing story time. And so it was very like telling stories to an audience in a marketplace or, or, or children on the mat in school. And it was it was very like to me, much, much more like the oral tradition of storytelling than anything that you could create on a page with the kind of lack of restrictions that you need there. Yes, that, that's exactly what I was going to just suggest that it was like, um, funnily enough. It, it is that kind of aspect of, well, I suppose in oral storytelling terms, that people would adapt stories based on who was in the audience or based on the locality that they were in, very much the way that pantomime works now, I suppose, with the kind of little in jokes and digs at people who are in the audience on any given night. And I suppose that kind of live storytelling 
is a way of doing that as well, isn't it? It's, I, I guess, quite an exciting way of writing as well as an author. It is. It's interesting because it means that the involvement with the audience is much closer and much more personal because obviously when I'm writing a book, I have to wait until the book is edited, finished, published, out there in the wild before I can get any kind of feedback at all. But if I'm telling a story live on Twitter, what I find is that I get the reactions there immediately. If I stop to make a cup of tea and I wait for five minutes till the next tweet, I will have people going, come on, come on, come on, I'm waiting for the next bit, or no, you're not going to do that, or I know what's going to happen here, or no, that didn't happen. Um, and it's, it is a very reactive medium. It's, it's a very emotional medium in that respect. And it's, it's got that kind of volatility, which is much more like a, a kind of stage performance, mm. which is why actually I created story time, the stage show, and, and with the band that I've been in for years, we made it, in fact, into a live storytelling show with some extras just to just to play with different kinds of form because it seems to me that stories are very it's a very volatile medium it likes to explore other forms it likes to explore illustration and music and performance um stories don't like to stay on the page they kind of struggle to get off off from there Mm. yes it does it brings them alive doesn't it now you've got a number of stories in in this book in honeycomb that that uh originated through that medium story time on on twitter yes most and, of them actually i would say about 80 percent of them did yeah and, and then you've got these extra bits that kind of tie the whole thing together now you, you do start right at the very beginning with um story two off the top of my head uh with a retelling of, a, of an existing story which is the fairy ointment um which i think is is a, a great way of of kind of settling people into this idea because it's a very well-known story so therefore people instantly feel comfortable with with what they're reading and kind of oh i know this world and i know how this works before you then go on and subvert it all later on obviously (laughs) but um, i wanted to do that yes yeah it's 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 actually the only story that's not original and i hmm. did that on purpose to kind of open a little door into the world of folklore that we all know or we think we know and to go actually there are other ways of developing folklore and and the rest of them will be new yes and i think it's a very clever way of of drawing people in and and there's enough variation in your telling of that story then to to make it absolutely sit and make sense in the world that then emerges out of it in the rest of the book so are are some of your stories using do you think these kind of well-known ideas or motifs that that people will just subconsciously be going, oh, yeah, I recognise that. That makes sense, even though they're your own stories and your own tellings. Well, I think that inevitably they will. We've all been brought up on a certain kind of folkloric heritage, if you like, and there is something about the storytelling form and its essential themes, which I think is pretty much universal and and which crosses all of European folklore and, and out of Europe too. So... It's linguistically, it is in the zone, if you like. But I also wanted to hint at the idea of folklore being an ongoing process, not something that's just rooted in the past. That actually folklore is constantly building on ideas and themes and tropes and potential characters and concerns that we have always had. And that it's it's fine to adapt and to add on to those things and to make them relevant to, to current events, because as soon as something is left too long in the past, it calcifies and it ceases to be as relevant. 
So I wanted to, to take a lot of those things and just carry them along and make them new and rebuild them to, to fit mm. whatever the, the requirement of that story happened to be. And I can't, I'll tell so you, you've got things that are very much, you know, they, I'm sorry, uh, know. things that are, are, are very much based on, on kind of myths and legends, things that are fables. I mean, I was brought up, of course, with a French tradition of fables with people like La Fontaine. And so you've got a lot of fables about animals there, which you might think of Aesop as well in the same way. And then you've got you've got fairy stories, but then you've also got stories of other worlds and, and potentially mythology uh, around different countries, too. And do you think it's fair to say, lead, leading on from from that, that some of these stories provide as many folk stories do, a kind of a social commentary on the times that we're in now. I can certainly off the top of my head think of a, a couple of stories which have great examples of what I think is happening there. Oh, yes, I think because many of them, because they belonged on social media initially and because they were related to things that were happening on social media, it was quite fun to link them to social media. And so, yes, when I'm, when I'm writing a story about a mad king who lives in a golden tower, most people know who I'm talking about. Or, or, or if, if there is some, some kind of humorous story about, um, about animals on a farm, people do tend to sort of associate, let's, shall we say, different politicians with, with the various the various creatures and their policies. And yes, there, there was there was a certain amount of playing with that, but I didn't want to to make it clear because again, I didn't want those things to stay in the past. And I've realized that people reading my stories on Twitter tend to put a very different spin on them sometimes, depending on where they're from, um, what their particular concerns are. And so I thought rather than put footnotes and go, right, I wrote this story about this, I would just let people put their own interpretation onto them and or no interpretation at all just just enjoy them for the for what they are and i did particularly think of the the farmyard elections uh, of which animal would be elected as being very much a commentary on on some politics <laughs> that was going on around around that time and similarly i think there are one or two stories that i i just read and thought this is just like reading a twitter troll feed and, and I got the feeling that perhaps there was some commentary on the way that people interact on the medium in which you are writing the stories as well. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's um, stories tend to be expressions of how communities interact. There are lots of different communities in my stories. One of them is absolutely the social media world, which which is one of the many worlds of the honeycomb, and mm. and another is the political world, and another is is. The publishing world, there are quite a lot of publishing fables in there um, because, of course, all these little communities have their own dramas reenacted every day. And it's just a kind of little factory of stories waiting to be collected. Mm. Yes, yes. Real life is nothing if not a good repository for, uh, for inspiration for story. That's that's definitely the case. Now, your main protagonist, as you say, is the Lacewing King, uh, who is a, a character who who is... Uh, crops up quite a lot during the book um uh, and then the, so the real world then is interacting with with what you describe as the silken folk um which it, which is essentially the world of of fairy in your stories now how does your community of the silken folk sit alongside traditional 
fairy gatherings like the Seelie and the Unseelie Court, for example, and those sorts of traditional groups of fairies? Well, it's not disconnected, but I wanted to to put a slightly different spin onto the fairy world. And so my my silken folk are predominantly shapeshifters and they inhabit a kind of liminal space between this world and, and the insect world, in fact. And, and it's based on something that um, that my, my, my grandmother said to me a long time ago about fairies and about people who believed in fairies. And, uh, and there was a theory at one point that you know, ignorant people saw butterflies and imagined that they were fairies. And then this was where the mythology came from. And so I turned it around. I said, you know, actually, Maybe maybe people people saw the fairies and just thought, you know, and didn't realise that they were seeing the fairies because they were in disguise. And so all my silken folk can change into morph into clouds of insects and they all have their separate kingdoms and territories. Um, and they have a, a strongly constructed society there, which which is mostly invisible to human beings unless they want to be visible, but then they can take the form of human beings. I wanted to to create a slightly alternative vision without without necessarily going too far from what we already are happy with and familiar with and, and love. I think people who who read Honeycomb having read Orfea, or or in fact people who listen to this interview in advance of reading Honeycomb, who who heard us speak about Orfea a little while ago on the podcast, are probably going to notice some themes, aren't they, that are, that are similar between those two books? Yes, Orfea is basically set in the same world as Honeycomb, as are my other novellas drawn from the, the child ballads. Um, and you know, to a tangential extent, also my, my Gospel of Loki books and, and my Runemarks books, they're all basically in this extended version of the Norse Nine Worlds, which, as time has passed, has actually become a lot more than nine worlds because uh, there's just more to it. The world has expanded as our knowledge of it has expanded. But yes, it's it still has the same general world-building themes. There is death as a country, as a destination. There is dream as a river which connects the worlds together. There is the possibility of a kind of multiverse which is accessible through various magical means there is the night train which is the the vehicle which crosses through all the worlds and terminates in in the country of death and then there is the lord of death who has made a number of appearances in my books in different aspects and and who plays a role in this one so you have a set of tiny stories that originate on twitter to start with that you then work up into slightly longer short stories as as you put this book together and then you tie the whole thing together with the the story arc that runs through it how does that process work for you do you do you uh have to be comfortable with all of the short stories first and then look at tying them together or do you have a a kind of a broader view of what what's going to happen as you're going along well it's it kind of acquired a sort of morphic resonance if you like as as it progressed some of the stories are almost exactly as i wrote them on twitter um in fact quite a lot of the standalone ones are exactly as i wrote them on twitter um because 
I was thinking about them in a very particular way and they were structured in a very particular way. And to change them and to extend them would have been to have to deconstruct them. And so I've, I've left a lot of them more or less intact, bar a little bit of light editing. Um, as for the, the overarching storylines, they sort of developed on their own. I realized that much as I realized when I was writing rune marks for my daughter when she was nine, that certain people liked certain characters. So I just wrote more about them. And inevitably, because I was writing more about them, the stories that they tended to play a part in became more complicated and more interconnected. And so I realized when I had about 100 stories, I had the makings, the very strong makings of an actual plot. And all I had to do was to, to connect certain things. And the arc was already there in place very much. But uh, it, it wasn't originally my plan to do any of that. I, I, it wasn't originally my plan even to keep the stories. Mm -hmm. uh, originally, for the first half a dozen or so, I just let them go on Twitter. I just thought, you know, this is, this is an interesting experiment in social media ephemera. We will see what happens. And what happened, in fact, was that people said, are you keeping these? And when I said no, they kept them for me and they sent them to me in emails and they said, I really liked this story. Please don't let it die. Um, you know, you might want to use it somewhere. And so I had a little file of stories that people had sent me. And then after that, I realized that, yes, maybe I did want to keep them. Mm. And so I would go back over my tweets and just copy them into a file. And then I realized by the end of a certain length of time, five years, six years, I realized I had just dozens of them. And I thought, well, something has to come of them. Maybe, maybe at this point, if I can make something meaningful of it, maybe I can do something like, you know, the storybooks, the illustrated storybooks that I loved as a child, which, which are not really being made anymore. And, and perhaps I can do something like that, which, which taps into to a kind of nostalgia for folklore, but with, with a new spin on it. Mm, so I, I tried to, to kind of sell this idea to my publishers and they were very surprised about the whole thing. Um, <laughs> and then I tried to sell it to Charles Ness so that he could, uh, he could be the illustrator because I had, I'd thought about him from the start, given he's one of the very few living fairy painters we have left who actually really does believe in fairies. Yes, do do say a little bit more about Charles Vess and, and his work, because um, his illustrations are very, very evocative for the reason that you've just stated, really, I guess. Uh, and obviously, they're a perfect match for the text. So, yeah, say a little bit more about, about Charles and his work. Well, I've been aware of Charles's work for a really long time, obviously, and I've seen a lot of his books. And... I'd always rather liked the idea of working with him, uh, but I'd never done an illustrated book before. This was this was long before I connected with Bunny uh, to do A Pocket Full of Crows, um, because actually this project has been in the pipe for a very long time. Um, so I just basically got in touch with him directly and said, look, um, I'm going to send you half a dozen of my stories. Uh, if you like the sound of them, I have a book which I would very much like you to illustrate what about it. And I'd had a, a brief episode where he'd illustrated one of my stories for an American magazine, Fairy Magazine. And I thought, you know, maybe, maybe this is kismet. Maybe, maybe we can do something more, more than just one story. And it, I mean, obviously, he's got a lot of projects on 
he has to like a project to take it on. I think he doesn't have to take on anything. So I thought, you know, if, if he if he likes it, and and maybe this is his cup of tea. In fact, then uh, you know, maybe we can do this thing. And you did, and the results are, are going to be there very shortly for for all to see. And and it is a great a great fusion of of uh, picture and text and, and works so well. Do you, you've you've written a few times now, as you say, about about the world of the Silken Folk and, and what happens in there. Do you think it's an area that's particularly rich for storytelling even now, the, the whole world of fairy, if you want to look at it in a broad term? I think people are fascinated by the idea that there is unseen stuff going on around them. Um, which is effectively exactly what the silken folk are about. They are creatures that are mostly not seen, but are everywhere. Um, you might just get a glimpse of them from the corner of your eye or in dreams, or if you're lucky or very unlucky, you may actually meet one of them in the flesh. But they are closely linked to nature, um, to a kind of wilderness that we've lost track of uh, in our increasingly urbanised lives. But they're also there hiding in the cities. They are they are nature ready to take over at any point if we give them the chance. Um, and they are, to me, they're much more of an expression of kind of pre-Victorian fa- fairies. They're, they're much more the darker view of the, the fairy world um, because they have a quite sinister aspect in, in some cases. And I think, you know, in, in, in psychological terms, it's, it's interesting to express ideas through fairy stories that are difficult to express in other ways and I think as urban dwellers mostly we tend to have quite an interesting relationship with the countryside in some ways it's nostalgic in some ways it's fearful in some ways it's guilty because we've destroyed so much of it Um, and, and I just thought it might be an interesting way to to run parallel to some of those ideas through through stories, mm. uh, and it is extremely effective. Now, I, I, I must throw in one question um, on behalf of everybody who listens, who who also writes. We have a, a lot of a lot of um, other authors and, and writers who do listen, um, and, and that's just to ask whether, as an author, it's a completely different process for you to write short stories compared to novels and and how you go about that process to me it is a very different process and it's actually story time stories are in themselves a different process to the other short stories that i've written which are different which were written at a keyboard with no character limit and with a slightly different aim in mind so yes i always know that something's going to be a short story rather than a comp- component of a novel um, and I like I like doing both it's it's not necessarily easier just because it's short um, initially before I started on story time I would spend weeks writing one short story and in some ways story time was a way of me putting myself under pressure going you know what I'm going to write a story of 800 words and I'm going to do it right here right now and it's going to take me 20 minutes or half an hour because I'm doing it in public and I don't have the the luxury of thinking too much so in some ways it was almost it was almost a, a process of automatic writing um so it, it's not quite the same thing but I like it and, and I would recommend it to anybody who who wants to try a slightly different method 
um, where you're not constantly thinking about the result of something, but just the process. Um, and, and I know a lot of people, a lot of writers, particularly during this lockdown phase, who have talked about having writer's block, um, not being able to start. Um, writing short things is a very good way of, of getting out of the expectation that you lay on yourself to, to write thousands of words a day. Sometimes a small idea expressed simply can really be, it can be the start of something. It focuses, of course, what's going to happen. Right. <laughs> no, exactly. It focuses the mind, doesn't it? I suppose, and and uh, at the moment, especially, I think I think it's it's good to focus the mind <laughs> on something distinct and and something that you can get done in a shorter space of time and see a result for. So yes, I, I guess it it works very well in that way. Do you think the uh, the world of the Silken Folk is a world that you're going to revisit again in the future now? Oh, I think so. I think in some ways um, all my fantasy books are set in this world, but because it's a multiverse and because they are, some of them only interconnected in quite subtle ways, I think in, in many ways everything that I write, as Joanne M. Harris, if you like, is something which expands that world picture to me. I think in, in many ways all of those books, those fantasy books that I've written, are pieces of a bigger picture. In, in the same way that all the stories in Honeycomb are pieces of a bigger picture. So I think, you know, I'm I'm constantly expanding those jigsaw pieces into something else. And I, I do like it. I think it's it's lots of fun. And I like the the themes that I've been elaborating in there. So I think it's 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 very likely that yes, I will certainly keep revisiting it. I think, you know, even my my mainstream books that people don't think of as being fantasy are also interconnected with the honeycomb world it's just that we haven't all made the connection yet mm. but eventually maybe that will happen maybe who knows the title honeycomb could be read in a number of different ways in in my opinion and certainly the honeycomb itself is a very multi-structured device in some respects for for weaving the story it's a, a multi-structured thing in itself a honeycomb i suppose um why did you choose to go with honeycomb and with the concept of bees as storytellers if you like well that's really very much how it started the very first story that i wrote um, I was aware that I was telling a fairy story of some kind. Um, and I wanted something that hadn't been used before that would signify the beginning of a story. So I didn't want Once Upon a Time because it has been done. Hmm. And the story that I was telling happened to be about bees as messengers between worlds. And so I created this phrase as a tweet there is a story the bees used to tell, which makes it hard to disbelieve. And it became my once upon a time. It became the, the phrase which started every single one of the stories. And the bees became increasingly important characters. And, and because bees have so much folklore associated with them anyway, it's, it's almost a familiar narrative to start off with the idea that bees have things to say and bees can cross between worlds. And also bees have these these unexplained magical aspects to them how do they communicate how do they find the way home how do they 
how do they make honey? It's it's still quite mysterious. And so I, I thought, you know, the, the, the bees are right for these stories. And they became very much the kind of chorus. And I think for me as well, it also very nicely subverts the idea that as a species, the whole concept in folklore of telling the bees, i.e. we should tell the bees when there's a death in the family or when something important happens, it kind of twists that whole thing around. And actually it's the bees that, that need to be telling us the important stuff just as much as we should be telling them. Yes. So I, I like that whole idea. As we record this, we're approaching the end of May. This book comes out in June, is that correct? That's right, on the 3rd of June. Uh, and is that coming out in all formats, hardback, audiobook? Yeah. It is. I narrated the audiobook and there's some music from my band on there. Uh, there's an ebook, and obviously there is this rather beautiful hardback. Um, I am very happy for people to uh, to look at all the formats, but I have to say the hardback is particularly attractive. It's it's one of those books that was was designed to be a beautiful object, mm. and and I have to say it, it has turned into a very lovely collectible thing. Not everybody likes to read hardbacks because they can be hefty and heavy and difficult, but this this one is is rather special. Yes, I, I think it does kind of hark back to that that whole kind of um, traditional fairy story book with the beautiful illustrations that are designed to be read, shared, uh, looked at as a physical object. And I, I think it, it reflects that really well. So I, I do hope that people will, will uh, read Honeycomb in, or listen to Honeycomb in whatever format they want to, but... but Yes, I would I would certainly agree that the hardback is a good way to go. What else is coming up for you next, Joanne? Oh, well, I have another book coming up in autumn, which is very different, which is called A Narrow Door. I'm actually signing the uh, tin sheets for the special edition right now. And uh, that is a, a psychological thriller. Very different. No, uh, no folklore in there. In as much as I can actually avoid writing about folklore, because I would say that arguably, even when I'm writing about psychological thrillers, I am talking about various human mysteries and issues of perception and narrative, which actually tie in perfectly well, as far as I can see, into, into the more openly fantasy stuff that I do. Uh, I would have to agree. I think that whether we like it or not, folklore pervades into into every story or, or every part of our life in one way or another, doesn't it? Uh, Joanne, thank you so much for taking the time to come back onto the podcast again and uh, and discussing Honeycomb with us. I wish you every success with it, and I, I hope that uh, we will be talking again soon about the next visit to this particular part of your world. Thank you. It's my pleasure entirely. Thank you. My thanks to Joanne for coming on to the book club to talk about Honeycomb, and I hope that you'll seek out a copy. Before you go, just a quick reminder that the Folklore Podcast book club and the other content generated by us here at the Folklore Podcast is not sponsored or funded by advertising. We keep adverts off of our shows to avoid spoiling your listening experience. We only exist thanks to our listeners. So, if you enjoy our content, please consider pressing the donate button on the website at thefolklorepodcast.com or joining our Patreon page for extra content at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Thank you. See you next time.